You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 407 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last episode to talk about the reasons for the delay in what the Confederate Army commander, Braxton Bragg, had originally intended to be an attack at first light on the morning of Sunday, September 20th, 1863, the third day of the Battle of Chickamauga. We also talked about how, on the federal side, on the morning of the 20th, George Thomas was continuing to issue calls for reinforcements for his part of the Union lines there on the northern part of the battlefield. Specifically, Thomas wanted one of his detached divisions returned to him. That was the division commanded by James Negley. And we said that when, that morning, the Federal Army commander, William Rosecrans, agreed to return Negley's division to George Thomas, it set in motion a chain of events that would ultimately result in disaster for the Army of the Cumberland. However, at 9.30 that morning, that disaster for the Federals was still in the future. By 9.30, some four hours after Bragg had intended that his day-dawn attack should have been launched, The rising sun had burned away the fog and taken the edge off the bitter cold that had made the hours of darkness so miserable for the soldiers of both sides, most of whom had been forbidden from lighting fires to keep warm because the opposing lines were in such close proximity. But now, on the Sunday morning, while the air was still chilly, the sun's rays were rapidly warming up the fields and woods that covered the battlefield, there some eight miles south of Chattanooga. By 9.30, Confederate Corps Commander D.H. Hill was finally ready for the attack to begin. The troops had been fed, some adjustments had been made in the lines of Hill's two divisions, commanded by Patrick Claiborne and John C. Breckinridge, and scouts had discovered that the Yankee line didn't extend north of the Reedsbridge Road. That was the ground George Thomas wanted to cover with Negley's division, but in any case, While the Federals were still vulnerable in that sector, they had used the morning hours to good effect by strengthening the main part of Thomas's lines, which were anchored around Kelly Field. There, the Yankees had spent the morning throwing up some rough field works, behind which they could shelter during the upcoming fighting. Meanwhile, 
everyone over in the rebel lines near Kelly Field had listened to the ringing of axes throughout the morning hours and knew the Yankees were working to strengthen their lines. And all the Confederates knew that such goings-on over across the way didn't bode well for their upcoming attack. And as it turned out, they were right. Because that four-hour delay in the start of the Confederate attack and the fieldworks the Federals threw up during that time would prove enormously important both to the length of the opposing casualty lists on this part of the battlefield and to the ultimate outcome of the fight in this sector. Just as an editorial note, but while Braxton Bragg's decision to divide the Confederate Army into two wings was motivated, everyone supposes, by his desire to make things easier on himself, it also has a benefit for us as your podcast host, since it makes it much easier for us to describe what was happening on the battlefield. Well, that's right, because with the Confederate Army now divided into two wings, We can tell the story of the third day of the battle by describing what happened with each wing that day. So with this episode and the next one, we'll talk about what happened with Leonidas Polk's right wing on the northern part of the battlefield. And then after that, we'll talk about what happened with James Longstreet's left wing on the southern part of the battlefield. Hopefully by now, y'all realize that Bragg's plan for the 20th called for Polk's right wing to kick off the Confederate attack, with the goal of turning the Federal Army's left flank and driving the Yankees southward, away from Chattanooga. Once the Federal's left flank flank was turned and the Yankees were starting to be pushed south, then Longstreet's wing would join the fight. According to Bragg's plan, the attack of Longstreet's wing would help push the Yankees down to the southwest into McLemore's Cove, where the enemy army would be trapped. But at any rate, according to Bragg's plan for the 20th, all of that would start with Polk's rightmost, or northernmost, division, which would get the ball rolling, so to speak. Then the other divisions in the rebel army would join the fight sequentially, from right to left, until everyone was engaged, from Polk's wing to the north to Longstreet's wing to the south. And the Confederate division that was supposed to get the ball rolling, that is, Polk's rightmost or northernmost division, was Breckinridge's division in D.H. Hill's Corps. Exactly. And so, a bit after 9.30, about four hours after first light, when D.H. Hill decided everything was at long last ready to his satisfaction, it was John C. Breckinridge's division that finally got things started by stepping off to the attack. It was around 940 when Breckinridge's division started forward, arrayed in one long line of battle. The division consisted of Daniel Adams' mostly Louisiana brigade. It also included one regiment of Alabamans. Then Marcellus Stovall's mixed brigade of North Carolinians, Georgians, and Floridians. And then there was Benjamin Helms' command, the famed orphan brigade of Confederate Kentuckians, which, besides four Kentucky regiments, now also included one from Alabama. 
Adams' brigade started off first, headed due west for the Lafayette Road, about 1,200 yards distant. Seeing Adams begin his advance, Stovall launched his brigade westward as well, followed by Helms' orphan brigade. On the Federal side, John Beatty knew he was in trouble as soon as his pickets came running out of the woods in front of his regiments. The 34-year-old Beatty, besides being born near Sandusky, Ohio, the future site of Cedar Point, had led brigades at Perryville and Stones River and was an experienced and competent officer, respected by his men and his superiors. But here, George Thomas had asked the impossible of him. As y'all will recall from the last episode, Thomas was concerned that his lines didn't stretch far enough north to cover the Reed's Bridge Road, which is one of the reasons he wanted Negley's division to rejoin his command. But, absent Negley, Thomas wanted Beatty to stretch his brigade all the way north to the John McDonald farm. Beatty had protested that the distance involved required a division's worth of men to cover the ground adequately, but he protested to no avail because his orders still stood. George Thomas still expected him to cover that span of ground up to the McDonald house. Beatty, never one to hold his tongue, called the orders, quote unquote, decidedly unwise. But he nevertheless dutifully spread his four Indiana, Kentucky, and Illinois regiments across the wide expanse. His position was more gap than line, so he sent a strong force of skirmishers forward into the woods to the east of the McDonald farm fields in an attempt to appear stronger than he actually was. But now those skirmishers came pelting out of the woods with a strong force of advancing Confederates hot on their heels. With Breckinridge's Confederates bearing down on it, Beatty's overextended brigade line was doomed. The widely spaced Federal regiments were shattered as rebels from Adams, Stovall's, and half of Helm's brigades stormed out of the woods with devastating results. Within minutes, Beatty's line collapsed and the survivors of the broken regiments fled westward and south across the fields of the McDonald farm. Breckinridge's men had done exactly what Bragg had expected to happen. They'd turned the Federal left. Having smashed the Yankee flank, a short lull ensued as Daniel Adams and Marcella Stovall now bent their efforts towards swinging their brigades around to the left so they could start to advance south and begin the process of rolling up the enemy line. However, their fellow brigade commander, Benjamin Helm, wouldn't be joining them in this effort, since Helm had fallen while leading his men forward. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Of all the Confederates on the field that morning, 32-year-old Benjamin Helm was almost certainly the only one whose fate was of personal interest to the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Helm was a West Point graduate and had studied law at the University of Louisville and at Harvard. The son of a former governor of Kentucky, a militia officer in the Kentucky State Guard, a member of the Bluegrass State's legislature, and the state attorney for his district, Benjamin Helm was a rising star in Kentucky politics. And so, in 1856, it was fitting that he courted and married a young lady from one of the state's most prominent families, Emily Todd, the younger half-sister of Mary Lincoln. In 1861, Helm found himself in an unenviable position, as his friends and his Todd brothers-in-law urged him to side with the Confederacy, while his father and his brother-in-law Abraham Lincoln urged him to side with the Union. In Washington in April 1861, Lincoln even sweetened the deal by offering Helm a posting as paymaster in the Army with the rank of Major, but Helm returned to Kentucky and ultimately sided with the Confederacy. Here at Chickamauga, while the rightmost or northernmost three-fourths of Breckenridge's division had struck and rather easily shattered Beatty's overextended line of Federals, his leftmost regiments, in the form of about half of the Orphan's Brigade, had a much tougher time of it as they stirred up a hornet's nest of immovable opposition. Adams and Stovall's brigades and about half of Helm's Orphan Brigade were fortunate in striking John Beatty's Federals, since Beatty's brigade had pretty much been rushed into position at the last minute to extend George Thomas's line northward toward the Reedsbridge Road, and so didn't have time to construct breastworks. But the left-hand side of Helm's brigade wasn't so fortunate. They struck part of Thomas's main line, where the Yankees had used the morning hours to throw up rudimentary fieldworks. And now, even those rudimentary fieldworks would make a big difference in how the fighting here unfolded. Within the federal lines was Sergeant Samuel Price of the 2nd Ohio, who would later say, quote, We were laying behind our rude breastworks, two regiments deep, and the rebel columns soon appeared. On they came, amid the shower of musket balls and canister pouring from our lines. The destructive federal fire proved too much for the Orphan Brigade. They were stopped 75 yards short of the Yankee position. The men fell back in some disorder, but Helm was there to rally them. 
Raising the rebel yell, they surged forward again, but the Federals kept up their deadly work, and again the Confederates faltered and then withdrew. Benjamin Helm had gone forward with them, and when an enemy shell exploded nearby, he was struck in the side by a piece of metal. He slid from his horse, mortally wounded. His men carried him from the field, but Abraham and Mary Lincoln's brother-in-law died that night at a house near Reed's Bridge. While Helm had slammed that unfortunate portion of the Orphan Brigade against the strong defenses near the angle in George Thomas's main line at Kelly Field, Adams and Stovall had managed to get their brigades reoriented and started to advance south against the flank of the Federal's position. Deployed on both sides of the Lafayette Road, the Confederates rolled south through the fields of the McDonald Farm. Adams' brigade entered the woods on the west side of Kelly Field and made its way forward through the trees, driving fragments of Beatty's regiments before them. Meanwhile, Stovall moved his brigade through a skirt of woods, forcing the flank of Thomas's main line to refuse or to bend back in an attempt to block the rebel thrust. Pushing into the rear of George Thomas's Kelly Field position, Stovall continued on and struck Colonel William Gross's brigade, which was being ordered up to extend the federal flank. Gross's four regiments of Illinoisans, Hoosiers, and Buckeyes were caught in the act of deploying when Stovall's Confederates hit them. A member of the 6th Ohio said, quote, We heard a heavy body of troops come marching through the underbrush and leaves, but nothing could be seen, until suddenly a gray line burst into view, and before we were aware of it, fired into us a terrific volley. Gross's brigade of Federals, facing fire from both Stovall and Adams, broke and retreated into Kelly Field. As with Beatty, circumstances had once again unfolded so as to leave a lone Union brigade to be overwhelmed by superior numbers. So now, to all appearances, Breckinridge's division had turned the flank of Thomas's position and was successfully pushing south, just as Bragg had planned. The door to victory seemed to be opening for the rebels. But as Stovall's Confederates drove south, emerging from the woods at the northern edge of Kelly Field, they were stunned to see an enemy brigade appear as if out of the ground just a few yards in front of them. This was Van Der Veer's brigade from Brannan's division, which had just arrived at Kelly Field moments before. Van Der Veer ordered his four Indiana, Ohio, and Minnesota regiments to lie down, but then, as Stovall's Confederates entered the field only 75 yards away, he shouted for them to stand and fire. The unexpected blast of musketry in their faces staggered Stovall's men and their advance ground to a halt. Stovall now ordered his men to lie down and return the Yankees' fire, even as Union artillery to the south, in the middle of the field, also started to hurl shells at them. The pressure against Stovall mounted as Federal regiments in Thomas's second line, ringing the eastern edge of, the Ke of Kelly Field, turned around to face this new threat and added their fire into the mix. The storm of iron and lead proved too much, 
and Stovall's Confederates fled Kelly Field. Even as Stovall's thrust was halted and then turned back, to Stovall's right, Adams' Louisianans and Alabamans were marching into an ugly surprise of their own, as Colonel Timothy Stanley's brigade, from Negley's division, ambushed them. Stanley's small brigade of three Illinois, Michigan, and Ohio regiments poured fire into Adams' Confederates, and one of the casualties was Daniel Adams himself, who was knocked from his horse with a serious wound to his left arm. With Adams down, command of the brigade passed to Colonel Randall Gibson, who ordered a retreat. Meanwhile, not far away, but still outside the perimeter of the Federal's Kelly Field position, Colonel Joe Lewis of the 6th Kentucky had assumed command of the Orphan Brigade when Benjamin Helm fell, and Lewis was unaware of the exact whereabouts of either Stovall's or Adams' brigades. He didn't know whether their attacks were succeeding or on the brink of failure, and so Lewis rallied the men and led them forward in a third charge against the Yankee fieldworks. However, that attack, like the previous two made by the Orphan Brigade, disintegrated in bloody failure. The brigade's losses for the day would total nearly 500 men, almost all of them lost during this single hour of desperate fighting. With that, Breckinridge's division was finished. It had achieved Bragg's goal of turning the Federal left, but the timely arrival of enemy reinforcements meant Breckinridge could go no further. Breckinridge was also handicapped by not having any support of his own to reinforce his momentary success, since D.H. Hill allowed both of his divisions, Breckinridge's and Claiborne's, to advance that morning in a single long line of battle with not a man in reserve. D.H. Hill may have allowed both of his divisions to advance without a man in reserve, but the available support for Polk's right wing was Walker's Corps, and some of Walker's troops were theoretically available to exploit Breckinridge's momentary success. But in reality, Leonidas Polk failed as wing commander to issue the necessary orders that would have ensured Walker's men were moved up into position to support the attack. And when D.H. Hill rode back to rustle up some more troops himself, Hill and Walker disagreed about how to employ Walker's men to advantage. The result was that only one brigade from Walker's Corps, Govan's Brigade, ended up advancing toward the rear of Kelly Field in the wake of Adams and Stovall. But by that time, the effort was too little and too late, since Breckinridge's advance had already ground to a halt and been repulsed. When Daniel Govan realized he'd been sent on a fool's errand and that his brigade's march against the enemy was doomed to failure, his thoughts quickly turned from attack to retreat. And so, when all was said and done, Breckinridge's advance against the northern portion of George Thomas's line in and around Kelly Field had been full of much sound and fury, but in the end signified nothing. However, as Breckinridge's division had rolled forward, so did D.H. Hill's other division, Patrick Claiborne's. And next week, we'll look at the story of Claiborne's advance against the center and southern portions of the federal position at Kelly Field, and we'll see if he had any better luck than John C. Breckinridge. 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Battle Maps of the Civil War, the Western Theater by the American Battlefield Trust. If you're familiar with the Trust's battlefield maps, they've put out two collections, one for the Western Theater and one for the Eastern Theater. The one here for the Western Theater, of course, includes Chickamauga and allows you to follow the action as it unfolded on the battlefield there. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thanks to James M., Chris H., Dick V., Jenny S., Brian G., and Gary E. And thanks to Edward for his donation this past week. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we use it with their kind permission. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.